0: If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Last Sunday, I spoke on original sin in what I hope was the first of a series, considering the matter of original sin and the implications that flow from it, among them being human nature, indwelling sin, dealing with indwelling sin, the nature of temptation, and our presentation of the gospel. But based on conversations and actually thinking through various issues, I thought it might be helpful before we go any further into the series to answer a basic question. Why preach on original sin? My intent was and is twofold, instructive to examine what the scripture says about original sin, but then also corrective to realign our thinking on the matter. The classic passage is our text today. Here, found in Romans chapter 5. If you will follow along as I read beginning in verse number 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, Who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the, many, the one man, the many will be made righteous. Having read this, I would submit to you that um, we should not, and I don't intend to rest the whole doctrine of original sin on one passage. This truth is found throughout scripture. You see, one writer put it so well, Christian theology isn't like a Jenga game. An assemblage of propositional claims of which we try and see which can be removed without affecting the tower. Christian doctrine is more like the grammar of a story held together by the drama of a plot. In that sense, the doctrine of original sin and the historical understanding of the fall is woven into the fabric of a story that is ultimately the drama of God's gracious interaction with humanity. So we're not... Just trying to put pieces together like in a puzzle or like in a Jenga game. This is the grammar. This is the story, the narrative. And if we are to understand the whole story of scripture, we need to understand every piece of it. And this piece is that of original sin. So again, the question might be, why am I speaking on original sin? I I think I will suggest four reasons. The first one I mentioned last week, and that is a misdirected focus. What first got me interested in speaking on this is the fact that many people in the church today think that in terms of evangelism, our focus needs to be an attack on atheism. That you know people don't believe in God, and if we could get them to believe in God, then we could share the gospel with them. Um, the reality is we find ourselves in a post-Christian world, and it happened rather quickly, and we wonder, how did we get here? How did this happen? As I mentioned last week, many would point to the 19th century and the great atheists of that time, Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, uh, Nietzsche, uh, Freud, and others. And then today we have people like the late Christopher Hitchens and uh, Richard Dawkins. But it has been suggested and the Italian philosopher uh, Augusto del Nocce, that uh, the beginning of rationalism, rationalism was not with a denial of God, but a denial of original sin. I think we've, in where we are now, we've reversed it. We think if somehow we could convince people that God exists, then we could begin to talk to them about sin. Um, and I would say, no, that's not the case. It begins with the denial of original sin. And once you deny original sin, then in a sense, humanity is elevated and God is no longer necessary and then God can be denied as well. I mentioned last week that some people think it's because of science, that as we come into the modern age, science just sort of pushes religion aside and so people no longer uh, believe in God or in sin. But William Kavanaugh has argued, I think quite well, that it is political. The origins of this issue are political. That in the medieval period, before we come to the modern period, the idea of the fall was crucial. The fact that people were sinners was crucial. And it was crucial because it said, this is the way the world should be, and this is the way the world is right now. And because of sin, we need government, we need people, we need kings to govern people and keep them on the right path. Yeah, when modernity came in, people no longer talked about the fallen state of man, but rather the state of nature. This is the way things are. And in a very strange and sneaky way, it became a way to justify political maneuvering. So Machiavelli and all those people who came after him, because they had quietly gotten rid of original sin, now you begin to have, uh, if you wish, dictatorships or people seizing power, not because people are fallen, but because this is the way things are and so there needs to be somebody in charge. Anyway... This runs counter to what many Christians think. And so many spend their time seeking to persuade others of the existence of God. And they present evidence that proves the Christian faith is true. This is how you evangelize. You prove that Christianity is true. But in doing so, they, they fail to recognize the effects of original sin. We are all spiritually dead in Adam. We are altogether incapable of doing spiritual good. We cannot achieve salvation through obedience. We cannot come to faith by an act of the will. We can't say, I want to become a Christian. I will profess faith in Christ. This is what we hear Paul saying in Ephesians 2. If if we would listen carefully, I suspect oftentimes we don't. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. But I would submit to you that I think the modern church has in fact failed to embrace the doctrine of original sin and failed to acknowledge it. And so we have a faulty grammar when it comes to the story of the gospel. And so we miss, I think, there's a big hole in our story, the plot of God's grace for us. Somehow we imagine that people can come to faith on their own. And Paul tells us very clearly um, it is by grace that we have been saved. It is God who raised us from the dead. A dead person cannot say "I assent." A dead person needs to be brought to life. Uh, now, for those of you who might be theologically inclined, I'm not. It may seem that I'm picking on those who believe in free will. Um, no. Let's be clear that people do have the ability to choose between A and B, but they do not have the ability to choose what is spiritually correct. Okay? They cannot choose what is right versus what is wrong. And this is because of original sin. Okay? It is our nature because of original sin that we are incapable of willing We do not have the will to do that which pleases God or to do it in a way that pleases Him. But let's not just pick on the Arminians if you wish. Let's look at the Reformed people as well. When it comes to the matter of salvation, oftentimes people look exclusively to the doctrine of God and they would speak of the sovereignty of God, which we hold to. But they would miss a very crucial part of the story there would be a, a, a missing link in their grammar, if you wish, and that is anthropology, the part that deals with us. God's acting in salvation is necessitated by the fact that we are sinners. And I think oftentimes we sort of sort of brush by that rather quickly. Um, no, we are sinners through and through, and it is because of that, that God has sent his son to bring salvation. Uh, More on this in a bit. So, first of all, we have a, a wrong focus. We're focusing on atheism when it should, in fact, be sin. But secondly, we have weakened the foundations in the process. In looking upstairs, wandering this past week, through various books in preparation for this, I was struck by the fact that the vast majority, most of the books that have been published in the last 20 years that deal with theology, do not mention original sin. Some of them do not mention sin at all. And it was even the more striking to me because I picked out specific books like, okay, this title, this author should want to deal with this subject and not a peep, not a word. Instead, the language that is used is that of brokenness which is seen either as a result of a person's choices, you know, someone's made bad choices and therefore their lives have been broken, or there are factors outside the person's control, that something has happened, perhaps they were abused by someone, and therefore they are broken. And the focus seems to be on the brokenness of the individual. And I was reminded of uh, Bob Dylan's song, Everything is Broken, um, let me just read the first verse. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. This seems to be the focus, I think, of modern evangelism today. Let me just read one statement from the book. No one, Christians included, can avoid all contact with potentially corrupting people, systems, perspectives, and influences. Now, it's not stated explicitly, but what is implied is that corruption is the problem and corruption is outside the person. So, any person who walks through this world will end up being corrupted. You know, they can't help it. Um, because they live in this world, there are corrupt people, there are corrupt influences and institutions. Um, that's That's why people are the way they are. And in some ways, this reflects Jean-Jacques Rousseau's view that I talked about last week. Uh, I mentioned last week, in his late 30s, he entered a contest that was sponsored by an academy. And the question was, has the development of the arts and sciences been morally beneficial to humanity? And Rousseau said, no, absolutely not. That the arts and the sciences have corrupted us. They have alienated us from our original innocent condition. They have deprived us of the power to recapture that condition. And he won first prize for his essay. The solution in his mind was to keep children from corrupting influences. And for adults, I mean, you're sort of on your own, but hopefully you can get away from corrupting influences and get back to the original state. uh, The noble savage, if you wish. Now, the Christian writers that I've looked at do not suggest that this is the case at all. But instead they see Jesus as the one who brings wholeness. And I would wholeheartedly agree. But I would ask the question, what is the starting point? What was the original condition of the broken individual? That is the issue. If we fail to understand original sin and that the fallen state of the individual is what it is, then the gospel we bring is less than what it should be. It will be one of healing. I'm not opposed to that. Um, And perhaps even on some level a gospel of forgiving, but not a gospel that cures us of sin. We need to go back and remember to recognize that there are three components, key components of biblical grammar, if I could put it that way. First of all, the goodness of creation. When God created the world, it reflected him. We have a good creator who is creating a good creation. And specifically, we see this in his creation of those made in his image. In the various confessions of the church over the centuries, when dealing with original sin, they tie it up with original righteousness. That is, what were Adam and Eve like before they sinned? There is goodness. There is righteousness. This is important. Goodness comes before evil. That the creation in its original state is good. God saw it and it was good. And at the end he saw it was very good. Adam and Eve then sinned and things are messed up. But we start out with a good creation. A good God created all things. But he's not the author of sin. The second part of our grammar, the second key, is the sudden violent um, entrance of sin. The word eruption, I-R-R-U-P-T. ION, it's this violent entrance of sin into the world. Sin is not natural. It's not some natural outgrowth of a process that happens in creation. It was not intended for creation. Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled, they fell into sin. And it was a result of their disobedience. Now, when you take these two things together, the goodness of creation and this violent entrance of sin into creation, it brings us to the third, it sets the stage for the good news of the gospel, a gracious redemption and consummation. It is the grace of God that rescues all creation from its condition of brokenness and sin. One confession put it this way, We believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, Seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man trembling all over was fleeing from him. So here's the core of the Christian faith. A good creation. We have the fall, this violent entrance of sin into the world. And then we have the redemption through Jesus Christ and the consummation that will happen when he returns. So there are two realities that we need to grab a hold of here and embrace. First of all, an affirmation that goodness comes before evil. And we've seen this in other things that so many people do not begin with creation. They begin with fall. And yeah, when you do that, then you've, you've, you've missed the boat. We must begin with the goodness of creation. This is called the priority of goodness thesis. Okay? The second thing we need to embrace... Is that there is a radical, this radical entrance of sin into the world, making humanity incapable of doing good, it required an equally radical entrance of grace into the world by the Lord Jesus Christ. This we call the necessity of grace thesis. So we need to have a correct focus. I think. We've messed up there. We need to strengthen the foundations. The third thing, and the third reason for preaching on original sin, is that in the process of, of shoving this aside, we have cheapened grace. And by this I mean a faulty view of salvation. Somehow it's wrapped up in the matter of sin, or more specifically sins. What we learn from original sin is that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Did you get that? We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That is to say the condition precedes the action. Although sins aren't exclusively actions, but the condition precedes the actions. And the decline of the doctrine of original sin has resulted in people, particularly Christians focusing more on the actions Than the condition. And I would submit to you that those of us raised in Christian homes have been very susceptible to this way of thinking. For some, we almost envy those who can tell testimonies of having lived great lives of sin and then they were rescued by the grace of God and now they are the children of God. As a result, more people than I care to number have left uh, a Christian home and gone out and lived lives of sin and then come back at a certain point in their lives and then they feel, oh, now I am worthy of God being gracious to me. You know, Before I was sort of a good person and so uh, it wasn't a very efficient use of the grace of God, but, but now I've sinned and now God um, can forgive me of all those things. I remember years ago in a Bible study in my hometown in Baguio that... Uh, During a question and answer, this woman asked a question, and her father was a very famous pastor there in the Philippines. She was raised in a Christian home, and she expressed that she felt somewhat cheated, that she didn't have a testimony to give, that she hadn't lived a life of great sin. And what did the person leading the Bible study think about that? And the answer was that... The person suggested that she should be thankful she didn't live a life of sin. Therefore, she didn't suffer the consequences of those or the effects of that life. I think a better answer would be to say the work of Christ forgave your condition. You're focusing on the symptoms. You're not focusing on the condition. You were a sinner and the work of Christ has cured you of that condition. It is almost as though if a person could live a sinless life, which is not possible, but let's say for the sake of argument, someone would live a, a sinless life, he or she would still be in need of the work of Christ to cure the condition. Now, oftentimes, I think, when we uh, witness or you know, we talk to people, we mention specific sins. And, and even if we lead them in the sinner's prayer, we, ask, we have them ask God to forgive them of their sins. And we're focusing on the symptoms and not the condition. Original sin is the condition of which we need to be cured. Paul wrote to the Philippians, If anyone thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisees, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. In other words, Paul said, I was, at least based on the Pharisees, I was sinless. I had not sinned. Yet Paul came to see his need of new life in Christ. His condition of being a sinner had to be cured. When we talk about sin, we need to recognize the presence of sin, the nature of sin, the danger of sin. But at the same time, we should rejoice as God's people that the condition has been cured. Jesus, in fact, has begun the work of salvation in our lives. He has cured us from original sin. Yet, as our prayer of confession today is, yet I sin. Those are the symptoms. The condition has been dealt with through the death of Christ. And we need to recognize that. The fourth and final reason why I want to preach on original sin, it is my hope that the work of the Lord Jesus would be exalted and would be lifted up. It is my hope that in looking at original sin, we will have a deeper appreciation for what the Lord Jesus has done for us. If we think only in terms of symptoms, our view may in fact be quite shallow. We will fail to appreciate, as we should, the grace of God. And the love of God. We will not understand as Paul did earlier in chapter 5 of Romans. If you are still there. Beginning in verse number 6. He said you see at just the right time when we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners Christ died for us amazing as John Newton put it, it is amazing grace but only in my opinion if we have a grasp of the reality of original sin if we think only of symptoms yeah I used to do this I used to do that I used to think this way I used to speak this way but that has been forgiven I don't deny that but it is the fact that we are sinners born into sin that Christ the work of Christ changes that and we are now the children of God. And I think we will not have a full appreciation of the Lord Jesus if we do not understand the reality of original sin. Our opening hymn today was Holy, Holy, Holy and it's based on Isaiah's vision of the Lord in the temple. And in this he is given both a vision, the glory of God, but also an awareness of his fallen condition. And atonement is made. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Original sin speaks of our condition. Our condition as sinners. But the Lord Jesus has atoned for that. It has been dealt with. Yet I sin as we said in the prayer of confession today. And in the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will look at this. Why is it, if, in fact, Christ has cured us of our condition, we still have the symptoms? Um, Again, I hope that we will see this in the weeks to come. I would just encourage you to think on this, that the church, I think, has become much weakened in the past century because it has neglected original sin. And in the process, it has belittled Not deliberately, but as a result, it has belittled the death of Christ. It has made it smaller, that it deals with symptoms rather than curing the condition. At the end of the prayer of confession today, grant that through the tears of repentance I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. It is my prayer that that will be the case as we go through this series. Let's pray together. Our Father, I think we are more comfortable acknowledging the symptoms of our sinfulness than the reality of our sinfulness. We are so grateful that the Lord Jesus came and gave his life to cure us of the condition brought about through Adam and Eve's rebellion. And though the symptoms persist, by faith we trust that we are your children. We are no longer slaves to sin. May we have a higher view of the work of Christ as we acknowledge what he has done for us. May we come to see that goodness has always preceded evil. And as a result of the fall, the Lord Jesus has come. Now there is redemption and one day we will be with him forever. But we need to have the right grammar, the right tools. We must get the story right to understand what Jesus has done. Though we do not fully understand it, we give thanks that Jesus has saved us. May we rejoice in that. We pray for Butch as he has surgery tomorrow. Watch over him and the doctors. We pray that he would come through safely. We pray for Zib's boys, for Jacob and Ezra, as they're at a new daycare center. And now, suffering some sickness, watch over them and keep them safe as well. And for each of us as we go through the world in this coming week, may we have a sense of your presence and your grace. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.